make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. Thank you, Jeff, for reading that for us. It seemed that it would be good coming off of Thanksgiving uh, to really focus in on this theme, knowing that quite a few folks would be traveling as well uh, with our Galatians series to take a break right at the end of chapter 3 there. And so we are focusing on Psalm 100. I'm not sure if it's my contacts this morning or if all of you are looking a little bit more satisfied. That's a nice way of saying maybe you gained an ounce or two after all the turkey this last week. <clears throat> all right, let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Again, ask him to guide us through this passage to apply it to our hearts, and then we'll study it together. Lord, thank you so much for your goodness. We do have much to be thankful for. This particular season uh, reminds us that we are often focused on what we don't have, and then we should be focused on what we do have and giving thanks to you who is the giver of all good gifts. Uh, what we have comes from you. And Lord, it's not that we oftentimes have too small of a want in our hearts or too big of a want. It's seems as though our wants are too small, focused on things that fade. Our wants should be bigger. Our wants should be for you. Our wants should be directed towards you. <clears throat> so please give us greater desires above these earthly temporal things that will fade away and rust and I pray that our thoughts and our desires would be satisfied um, in you and that we would want more of you. So please help us as we look at this passage now this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, there's a lot of wants that go on in our hearts. Um, our hearts are regularly billowing out the wants that matter most to us. Um, it was just Black Friday this last week. Tomorrow is Cyber Monday. You might get 50% off of some really cool things that you've wanted. We have these ideas of what we want to enact or act upon. We have clothes that we want. We have retirement income that we want. We have all of these wants. Perhaps it's a relationship that is not where you want it to be. Do you ever get tired of not being content with what you have and with what God has given? This psalm redirects our attention because while some of those things that we talk about, we need clothes, we need to store up for a day when we can't work, we need relationships, those things are good things, but sometimes our hearts miss what is greatest and highest. Our hearts miss the, 
the object, the relationship of who God is. And this psalm helps us do that. This psalm helps us lift our eyes above what we have here on a horizontal level and say, okay, God, it is you that I should be giving thanks for. It's you whom I should be focusing my attention on. So the psalm is broken down into very clean, discernible parts. Two sections here. Section one is found in verses one through three, where we're going to see that God is deserving of our joy because he made us and provides for us. And then section two is found in verses four and five, where we see that God is deserving of our thanks because he is good and faithful to his promises. And really the outline of the psalm just speaks for itself. So we'll move through this, starting with point number one, that God is deserving of our joy. God is deserving of our joy. And you see this really in verse one, where he says this, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth, serve the Lord with gladness, and come into his presence with thanksgiving. You see those three commands there of make that joyful noise, serve the Lord with gladness, and then that emphasis of coming to his presence with singing. All of those are emphasizing joy. To make a joyful noise simply means to raise a jubilant shout. It's what happened probably yesterday for about two-thirds of you when Michigan defeated Ohio State. You like Michigan, and so when Michigan got the win, it wasn't forced for you to have joy. It was genuine. What took place brought joy out of your hearts. And that's what the psalmist is imploring us to do. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Let it be sincere. Let it be genuine. Let it be a shout of praise that comes up from your heart and out of your lips. And notice who is supposed to be doing this according to verse 1. Make a joyful noise to the Lord who? All of the earth. In other words, that God is worthy to the point that all people all over the earth can and should have joy because of who he is. So right now, we could think about a homeless individual outside of Port-au-Prince. A few of us went down there several years ago to help out with a project, and there was a lot of poverty there. Or you could think about the high-flying banker in Switzerland. People from all corners of the globe should be able to come before the Lord and have this joyful shout, this joyful noise that comes from within. Second, we're told to serve the Lord with gladness. Uh, You remember Romans 12, verse 1. I urge you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to him, which is your reasonable worship or your reasonable service. So the idea here is, you know, come before him with joy and then serve the Lord. But notice the phrase that accompanies serving the Lord. How are we to serve the Lord? We're to serve the Lord with gladness. What makes it possible for gladness to accompany our serving? What draws out gladness when you are serving others? One thing that is present with gladness is that there is a harmony in your heart towards that individual. You have an affection or a desire for that person at one level or another. You have love. And the reason why one can serve the Lord with gladness is because there's encouraging knowledge of who God is. He is present. There's love for who God is. 
there's thankfulness for who God is, and your heart resonates with who God is, and it results in gladness. There's a third action in verse 2 where it says, come before his presence with singing. It's for all of the earth to come before his presence with singing. So you can imagine a great king or emperor who has won military victories comes back to the city, and upon his arrival back home, there's a great crowd that welcomes him into the capital city. People from all over the capital have dropped their shovels, they've dropped their rakes, They've come into this capital city, setting aside those tasks because they want to see their king. And so the crowds pack into the city square and everything comes to a hush. The trumpets sound with a blast. And from the bottom of their hearts, an anthem comes out to the crown. Everyone joins in singing with purpose and sincerity Because they're joyful about what their king has won for them. They realize that their king has brought them another victory. They realize that their king has provided them with security. And so naturally, instead of being taken over by the enemy, they're coming before him and singing in his presence. And so the psalmist calls us to the Lord with that kind of response. He commands us, hey, come into his presence. We are to approach him. We're to come before him with thanksgiving. So the people are to raise a shout. They're to serve, and they're to come into his presence. Now, you pause there at the end of verses 1 and 2, and I think naturally you ask the question, what drives this kind of response? What drives the idea of joy? What drives the emotions of gladness? What drives genuine singing to come up from an individual's heart. There has to be a sincere cause because we're not in this to just practice religion, go through the motions, check the boxes, and say, all right, we did it. We want this to be a relationship. And so what the psalmist, if this is David, does in verse 3 is he gives the ground or the support upon which those emotions should be built on. So verse 3 says this, know, and that's a command, know that the Lord, he is God. So keep in mind where we've been, verses 1 and 2, there ought to be a joyful response to God, and we're asking the question, okay, why should there be a joyful response? And he says, verse 3, you can have a joyful response to the Lord based on what you know about him. But it's not just passive knowledge. This is, hey, you need to know this. Command, think this about the Lord. And so what do we think about God? Well, we see several truths about him in verse 3. He says this, know that the Lord, he is God. Now, did David just kind of decide, I need more names for God here? Know that the Lord, he is God? What's the purpose of calling him Lord and God there in verse 3? Lord is the name Yahweh or Jehovah often used in terms of his covenant relationship with his people. When you see that term, 
my mind always goes back to this is how God identified himself with Israel when he set them up in the covenant at Sinai. Know that the Lord, the covenant Lord, the relational Lord, the one who is in relationship with his people is also what? He's also Elohim. He's also God here. And that term Elohim draws our mind all the way back to Genesis 1, where he is the creator of all things. So know that the one whom you're in relationship with is also the one who is over all things. He is Elohim. He is God. Know that the Lord, he is God. Imagine if Elon Musk lived in Grand Haven for three months out of the year. It'd have to be June, July, and August here, right? He's been the driving force behind Tesla. He launched PayPal. He is the SpaceX Starlink guy. He's been behind a lot of AI. He's heading up X now. And not too long ago, his net worth was $240 billion. Now, if Musk vacationed in Grand Haven for three months out of the summer, or if he vacationed just for one week out of the summer, the city would be buzzing with excitement, talking about all that he has done. And everybody would have that sort of kind of conversation going on at Morningstar or at any of the restaurants downtown. They would be talking about what he's accomplished and who he is as an individual. And then maybe he has an open invite for people to come on down to the waterfront. Just come on down and meet Elon Musk. And maybe he'll even have a Tesla to give away. Brand new. Everybody would just be talking about the guy and thinking, wow, he came to Grand Haven. We have a propensity to be drawn into, amused, excited about those who have accomplished much. That's why we know that name. And that's why we know all the other big names out there because of the accomplishments that they have done. Here's the psalmist's point about God. Don't forget this. He is the Lord who is in relationship with you. And he's God. He's the creator God over all things. Tesla is like a little piece of dust to him that he could blow away. Spacelink or SpaceX and Starlink, that's nothing to him. Notice what he says here in verse 3. Know that the Lord, the one whom you're in relationship with, the creator God, notice verse 3, it is he who made us and we are his. And so now he starts in on this. Who are you in relationship to him? You are his creation. You're the one whom he designed. Genesis 1, pinnacle of creation. Very good. You've been designed and created by him. When you think about God's creation, and hopefully you appreciate what God has done in creation, when you think about just the complexities of the human body, you are pushed to a place of awe. So I'm studying this passage this week, and I'm thinking, okay, the eye always fascinates me. Each of you have got two eyeballs. And how eyes are designed 
is just, it's mind-blowing. If you read Darwin's black box, Michael Behe, he talks about the systems in the eye that are so complex, and he argues against evolution and talks about the ways and designs in which the eye have to function, eye has to function. There are, there are these synergistic machines, if you will, in the eye that could not have just developed naturally by evolution. They had to be designed at one point because they're feeding off each other to make the eye work. It had to be like, boom, put together because the machine wouldn't work if it, if it was going through an evolutionary process. The eye is just fascinating when you think about it. You've got this eyeball here, and on the outside, you've got this cornea that's filled with this fluid that sort of starts to filter lights coming in. Around, you've got that colorful part of your eye called the iris, which is actually a muscle, and it, it's shrinking or expanding depending on how much light is hitting your eye. And in the middle of that iris is the pupil, which is like a well, just a hollow spot where light can travel through. We've got to keep this delicate here so that you don't get burned up by too much light. So we'll narrow it in with the muscle here so that not too much light comes into that hole. And then behind that is your lens. And your lens is attached to these muscles that can flatten it out if you have to focus on something that's far away or shrink it down if you have to focus on something that's near. And that lens is just kind of soft, malleable material. And all, all along, your, your eye is just naturally focusing on things so that I can see, I can see Don back there and I can see Nancy back there or I can, I can see Bruce up here. You know, it's, it's all just natural. I don't even have to think about it. But what floors me is that on the back of the eye is this optic nerve that's not really like, it's, it's just on the back of the eyeball. And that's what sees the light at the back of the auditorium and sends a signal to my brain saying, that's a light. I'm looking like for the old negatives, you know? Take a picture, got it, it's on paper, I can see that. Could you imagine if you had to have that going through your brain all the time, a negative spitting out at the top of your head, like the old Polaroid things? That nerve is just picking up on those things and the eye is functioning, expanding, contracting, moving all around so that my gray matter in the back of my brain can process all of you right now. Who could do that? Only God could. And it's amazing that when Jesus is walking around and comes up to blind people, the creator, he can see blind people and say, yep, um, I'll fix that optic nerve on the back of your eyeball right now. Be healed. Paul says, or David here is saying, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us. And here we are today living as creatures whom God has made. We are the objects, the trophies of his creation in that sense. Because God made us then, notice what the next phrase says. It is he who made us. We are his. We belong to God. So now there's a sense of ownership that God has over us. God owns us. He made us. He owns us. And then look at that other phrase at the end of verse 3. We are his people, and we are the sheep of his pasture. 
Notice the possessive pronouns there. He created us. We are his. We are his people. And we are the sheep of his pasture. All the world belongs to God, which, exhale, breathe, sigh, you can relax, that all of the world belongs to God. But the people of God belong to him in a very special way. And that's why he brings up this sort of possessive pronoun, we are his people and we are the sheep of his pasture. We belong to him. Exodus chapter 6 draws this out for us. Exodus 6, verses 6 and 7. God came to Moses and said, Say therefore to the people of, the, of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And then notice this phrase. I will take you to be my people. And I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. This is God redeeming us and bringing us into a relationship with him, where he says, we are his people. We belong to him. He talks about the sheep of his pastor, John chapter 10. Jesus mentioned this. He said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. But I am the good shepherd. I know my own, there's possession right there, and my own possession know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. Think about that for just a minute. The relationship that the, that the Father has with the Son, Jesus is saying, this is how it is for me with my people. I know them. There's oneness there. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Jesus is the shepherd. And he is going to take care of his sheep to the point that he will lay down his life so that the, the sheep can have eternal life. This thought of we are his people and then we are the sheep of his pasture reminds us of God's relationship, his ownership of us. Non-Christian, the purpose of your life, the wants of your life, will never be fully satisfied and your purpose will never be fully realized until you know the shepherd. We have been designed to be in relationship with God. And God, in his kindness, sent his son in order to die upon the cross so that you might have the forgiveness of sins, so that you might be brought into this fold, brought into this people having this relationship with him. Those who are born again Christians here, we are God's people. We are his people. We belong to him, and he is going to take care of his people. 
So Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4, this is the climax of God taking care of his people. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and here's the possession. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And notice what he will do. Notice how he will provide for the sheep of his pasture. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. So folks, the day is coming when God will dwell with us. The pain, the hurts, the effects of sin, all death will be wiped away. And that's God's initiative. This is how he is going to care for his people and the sheep of his pasture. And so when you come through verses 1 and 2, make a joyful noise to the Lord. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Why is it that we can come and make a joyful noise? It's because he's made us and he provides for us. This is who God is for you even right now. The gifts that we have had and enjoyed this past week, God made you for this time in history. He made you with emotions and abilities to feel and emotions and abilities to have pleasure. And so even this last week as you sat around the table and had a meal and enjoyed family and friends. That was God. That was God's kindness to you in those moments. And so naturally, we ought to respond as David or the psalmist says and says, okay, now make a joyful noise. But he's gone one step further than that. And he's given us salvation through Christ. And so we can come before the Lord with joy and with gladness and singing because he made us and he provides for us. All right, number two, God is deserving of our thanks. God is deserving of our thanks. Look at verse four, where he says, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. All right, three more commands there. Enter into the gates, come into his courts, give thanks and bless his name. Enter into his gates, give thanks, and bless his name. And you can think about the pilgrim who is journeying towards the temple in Jerusalem. Imagine someone who had traveled hundreds of miles, maybe from the northern area of Israel. And they're now seeing the temple complex, and they're inspired by the greatness of it all. And they're walking up the hill, the mountain that leads to Jerusalem, approaching the walls, and then coming into the city and eventually making it to the temple itself. And what does God do? He says, now just enter into the place where I manifest my presence. Just come into my presence. Maybe you've been to the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. It's not a common place for us out here in Michigan to go. But you go into the building, you see the rotunda, the marble floors, you see the historic figures, there's statues all around this rotunda of individuals who have shaped our country. And it's, it's kind of an amazing experience. Or maybe more familiar, another place of greatness is our Mackinac Bridge, right? It's on postcards, so that makes it great, I guess. It's got the great big pillars, the cables that go up into the sky. And it's inspiring when you're heading up the highway, the interstate there, you're looking ahead to see, when do I see the bridge? When is it coming? With those great places, there's a protocol, though. 
there's, there's a permission that's needed to go into the capital. There's a permission that's needed to get across the bridge. You have to apply for a ticket to get into the capital. You have to go through the toll booth and pay a fee to get across the bridge. The pilgrim is coming up to Jerusalem into the, the city and approaching the temple, and God simply says, just come, just enter and give thanks and praise. And God's invitation for us this morning is the same. Just come into my presence. Christ has opened up the veil. Come into the throne room of God right now this morning because you have freedom to do it. But upon what reason would I come with thanksgiving? Why would I make the journey there? Why would I come into God's presence and express thanks? Well, verse 5 unpacks it for us. He says four, okay, so here's the reason again. So verse three was a reason. Now verse five is another reason for why we can have genuine thanks to the Lord. For the Lord is good. This is the same word that's used in Genesis one to describe all of creation. Everything was beautiful, it was proper, it was functioning well, it was right, it was complete. God is good He is good in who he is. He is good in how he relates to his people. We need to know right now that God is the essence of good. Those things that you want on Black Friday, they're okay. The things that you want tomorrow on Cyber Monday, yeah, they're all right. In your mind, you have something that says, that's good, I want that. And here the Bible is saying, here is what good is. God is good. The epitome of goodness is God himself. For the Lord is good. And second, notice this. His steadfast love endures forever. So this is a promise for God's people. Here's the good God, the Lord, the creator God. And notice what his love is like towards his people. His love is steadfast. It's enduring. It continues on and on. So perhaps recently, you have had a relationship that has felt severed or broken. And either that person's love for you was severed and broken, or your relationship and your love for that person is severed and broken. Pastor Darren was talking about the body of Christ earlier and how we're a family. So we look at these and we say, okay, my love for that individual should not be severed or broken. And yet in our human nature, we feel it, right? Because we have that sin streak in us and sin disrupts us. But here is God who is good. And what does his goodness look like? Well, he continues on and he says, his steadfast love endures for his people. It keeps going on. Folks, no matter what you have done, you will never outrun or break the love of God towards you. God's love is steadfast upon his people. So Romans 8, verses 38 and 39, Paul could say this, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why won't that be able to separate us? Because God's love is greater than those things. God's love is like a flood. It covers those things. 
And not only is it that his steadfast love endures forever, but notice the last phrase, his faithfulness is to all generations, meaning that he is loyal. It's a parallel phrase to the preceding statement about his steadfast love. God is faithful to his people. 1 Corinthians 1.9 says this, but God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. God is faithful. He is not going to let you be removed or taken away from the fellowship that you have with him. Are we faithful and loyal to God? Does our steadfast love, does our love look steadfast in terms of commitment to God? And I think we would all say, no. We see our sin. We see our failures. We see that our love for God gets transferred to something over here. And we say, for that moment, that idol, that thing that I want, I love it. I'm going after it. And boom, it's sin. Okay, that action where I broke like love for God Does God say, okay, since you did that, tit for tat? No, he doesn't. And so the hope for every believer is that when we look in the mirror and we see our sinful selves, God reminds us, hey, I know what you see in the mirror because you're looking at it against the word. You're looking at yourself and you're saying, you're a sinner. Now, he says, put the mirror aside and look at me. My love for you, my loyalty for you will not be broken. It won't be snapped. I will always be there for my people. So if you were here on Wednesday night, I brought up Peter as an example. Certainly not perfect in his loyalty to Jesus, was he? But you see how Jesus was faithful and loyal to Peter. His love continued in Peter's life. Peter denied Jesus three times, and yet Jesus still surrounded him with love and used Peter for his honor and his glory. We have Peter streaks in all of us. With the truth seekers, we're going through the book of Hosea. And you talk about a picture there. Hosea is told, go out and marry the prostitute Gomer. And Gomer is kind of come and go. And he's using that picture to describe Israel's spirituality towards God, how they're come and go. They've got all kinds of spiritual adultery that's going on. And yet Hosea was to bind himself in marriage to Gomer. And God is using it as a picture of his enduring love, his steadfast love toward his people. When God enters into covenant with his people, he remains Some of you have felt the pain of abandonment. Some of you have felt it in a very hard way growing up. Maybe your dad wasn't there for you. He was selfish, ran away from the family. Perhaps it's a close friend that was there for you through thick and thin, and yet at some point, gone. Some of you have been hurt deeply by a spouse who abandoned you. Perhaps some of you, it's a child. They had self-seeking desires, drove them away from you and towards something or someone else. And Psalm 100 is saying, that's not so with God. He's not going to leave his people. He's loyal and steadfast in his love toward his own. So God, when you sit in that security, you say, all right, God, I'm not alone 
And naturally then, we go back to verse 5. I can enter into his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. I can give thanks to him and I can bless his name because of who he is. So God is deserving of our thanks and praise because he is good and he is faithful to his promises. Our sin reminds us of our shortcomings. We go back to the word of God and we see God's steadfastness. So what is the psalmist doing? He's showing us how we can and should live life. Um, it's November, and we are looking forward to summer already. We go down to the seawall, or we go down to the marina, and all of the boats have to be tied up, don't they? They have to be anchored to something. And if they're not anchored... They're going to drift. They're, they're going to wreck themselves. You can imagine going down to the river and seeing some boats lined up against the seawall and then all of a sudden watching one just sort of drift away from the seawall with ropes floating on top of the water saying, oh no, they are in trouble. Our hearts are tied to someone or something. We anchor ourselves to someone or something. Sometimes it can be the anchor of health. We have to have it. Achievements, we want them. Relationship, security, and safety. But at some point, those things will just let loose. They're going to let you down. They're going to disappoint you. And what the psalmist is saying is that at the heart level, at the heart level, our hearts have to have tethers and lines that go out to who God is, to God himself. And the psalmist is saying, when you have that kind of relationship with God, all of these other things are probably necessities in life, maybe not necessities, maybe luxuries that are fine to have. But when those are the place to which our heart is tied, yeah, your joy is going to come and go. It's going to be very shallow and thin joy. The psalmist is saying, throw your line out to the bigness of God with your heart. So take all of those other things, and it would be good for you this week to either do it mentally or on paper. Just sit down at a desk and write, what are the things that I know my heart is easily attached to? Jot those things down. One, two, three, four, and so on. Okay, and then come back up to the top. And as the psalmist is saying, Know that the Lord, he is God. For the Lord is good. Come back with your heart. Say, God, I know that you are far better than list one through four and so on. And this is where a heart of praise and thanksgiving is found. If we find ourselves being thankless, grumpy, grumbling, complaining people, it's that we have tethered our hearts to circumstances, people, or things. And the psalmist is saying, no, 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 no. Be joyful. Be thankful. Sing. Have gladness. How is that going to be happening? It's in appreciating that God is more. He's of more value than any of that. We're going to tether our hearts to God this week. We're going to see those things in their proper place, but at the top, 
We're going to say, God, you are above all those things. And then may joy be the result of that in our lives. May thanksgiving flow from our hearts this week because of who God is. Let's pray. Lord, earlier in the service, we heard the prayer of confession for the words that we've said. And those words that we've said were spoken because we did not get what we wanted and we responded with harshness, with words that tore down rather than words that build up. And so we see our heart because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And we have seen our heart. We've heard our heart with the words that have been spoken. And God, we come back to you as children and we're thankful for who you are. You're steadfast. And so we confess those sins again before you this morning. And we, by faith, lay hold of forgiveness and want to walk in fellowship with you. Lord, we're thankful for who you are. You truly are good. You truly are greater than anyone or anything. Forgive us for when our thoughts and our desires are just fixed on much lesser things than you. Increase our desires for you. And Lord, may that joy and thanksgiving then naturally be part of who we are because we can forsake those things and hold fast to you. I pray that as we go into our week, you would remind us going forward of your greatness. That when the temptations for idolatry are in front of us and the temptations for wanting and craving and having our own way above you, those idols are in front of us. Lord, please remind us. Remind us of who you are and remind us of our foolishness and remind us of of the reality that those things are going to rust and rot away. But you are forever. And we look forward to that Revelation 21 day when when we will be in your presence and when all the effects of sin will be gone. So please help us, Lord, by your strength to know that you, the Lord, you are God. Help us to have hearts that then overflow in joy and thanksgiving to you even this week. We thank you for gathering us here once again this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.